For the first episode of our second TMK book club, we want to start off by just reading the short preface of Wendy H.K. Chan's book, Control and Freedom, which provides a really, really nice contextual overview of many of the things we'll be getting into in this series. So it begins. During the Afghanistan war, the second Gulf War, and the subsequent occupation of Iraq, T-shirts, bumper stickers, and politicians reminded us, freedom is not free. This phrase, engraved on the Korean War Memorial in Washington, D.C., would seem simply to say that freedom comes at the cost of soldiers' lives and civilian sacrifices. Freedom is not without cost. Someone has to pay a price. This phrase, however, is open to another reading. When freedom is conflated with security, freedom loses its meaning. Freedom is no longer free. If freedom is, redu is reduced to a gated community writ large or becomes the ideological watchword of a national security state, then it can turn into nothing more than the partner of, or the alibi for, control. The, the very phrase, freedom is not free, can make freedom unfree when it calls on people to accept unfreedom as the cost of freedom. Free can also mean priceless, a gift. In English, the word free stems from the Sanskrit word for dear or beloved. The phrase, freedom is not free, should never make sense, for what is free should never be devalued. The value of freedom, underlined by its etymology, is erased when we shift the emphasis away from the action of giving something freely, not in return for something else, to the economism or opportunism of a recipient looking for a bargain, who refuses to acknowledge this liberality and thus literally cheapens this act. This cheapening of freedom is crucial to the conflation of control with freedom. Control and freedom, power and paranoia in the age of fiber optics, examines freedom through the rubric of the internet, more specifically through its emergence as a mass medium. Emphasizing the roles of sexuality and race, this book traces the ways in which a technology which thrives on control, has been accepted, however briefly, as a mass medium of freedom. Moving from utopian narratives about cyberspace to the underlying hardware of the internet seeks to obscure, and about which we often forget, it traces the structuring paradox of information and communications. Without control technologies, no freedom of choice or movement. But the linkage is not an identity. Freedom is not the same thing as control. Their conflation is a response to the failures of both liberty and discipline and marks a significant shift in the apparatuses of power. It is a response to the end of the Cold War and to the successes and failures of containment. In Paul Edwards' words, it's closed world. This conflation of freedom with control also produces and is produced by paranoia, a paranoia that stems from the attempt to solve political problems technologically. To be paranoid is to think like a machine. In this book, I do not condemn the internet. If anything, I hold it dear. Liking it or hating it as such is as pointless as being optimistic or pessimistic about its future. Rather, what we need is a serious engagement with the ways in which the internet enables communications between humans and machines, enables and stems from a freedom that cannot be controlled. Because freedom is a fact we all share, we have decisions to make. Freedom is not the result of our decisions, but rather, as Frederick Schilling and Jean-Luc Nancy have argued, what makes our decisions possible. This freedom is not inherently good, 
but entails a decision for good, hab- habituation and limitation, or for evil, destruction. The gaps within technological control, the differences between technological control and its rhetorical counterpart, and techno- technology's constant failures mean that our control systems can never entirely make these decisions for us. Fiber optic networks, this book argues, enable communications that physically instantiate and thus shatter enlightenment. They also link together desperate locations that only sometimes communicate. We must take seriously the vulnerability that comes with communications, not so that we condemn or accept all vulnerability without question, but that we might work together to create vulnerable systems with which we can live. Hello, comrades. It's episode 106 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. So for your premium episode this week, as you've already heard from our cold open, we're, we're, we're kicking off with the next TMK book club, uh, looking at Wendy H.K. Chun's very excellent a classic book in the kind of critical theory and new media studies around the you know very early days of the internet very that kind of transitional period from web 1.0 to web 2.0 uh you know the the dot com bubble has has just burst uh you know the it, it, we're we're looking at the immediate post 911 landscape you know freedom is every freedom is on everyone's mind uh, you know, we, we got freedom fries in everyone's mouth right now, of course. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and these these questions of of freedom and control of power and paranoia of safety and security. Uh, you know, these are the relations that are really beginning in a, uh, you know, that, that have always been present, but are, are now especially becoming the kind of dominant ideologies and dominant relations uh, in in the world, and and the internet as such is like so extremely wrapped up in that. It's it's while like this book was published in uh, in in like two thousand five, two thousand six. While that's not that long ago, it, it it might as well be a lifetime ago, right? Like like as we talked about with our nine eleven episodes with Kelsey, like you know, trying to look back at that time period. This is, it's a big memory hole. Uh, you know, we, we talked about the kind of like the, the military and national security context of technology at that time. So many things that we've just forgotten about or no longer noticed because they're the waters that we swim in. We've, they've, they're normalized. Um, this book will provide us a really, really interesting and necessary uh, opportunity to look at the kind of rhetorics and discourses around uh, around the internet and and the emergence of this new new mass medium at that time and, and you know things that still very much resonate today that very much like kind of dictate the ideologies and technologies that we're still constantly talking about and trying to uh, get our heads around here on TMK because one enduring problem is you know as highlighted in the you know, preface and also in the introduction, there's just a refusal to speak about the hardware. And when hardware is spoken about, it's in very narrow and specific terms, right? We don't speak about computational infrastructure unless we're talking about it as a, as a business model. 
right? If we're talking about computing um, or, or computing centers or data computer uh, data centers or cloud computing, you know, that's when we start to you know have discussions about the infrastructure. We don't talk about the pipelines. You know, as we did with Lala Kawali, we don't talk about, you know, like the actual undergrading platforms or networks or the workers that are involved in it or the labor that's made invisible, unless it's in like these very narrow confines, right? And I think that this book, or as it like tries to in the beginning flesh out, right, to really, and also, you know, my uh, weekly Morozov plug, you know, as, as people who are, you know, looking at it closely will talk about, right? The internet in of itself is not just like the internet as you interact with it. It has multiple things kind of like flattened into this term that refers to all of them and, and also not most of them at the same time. You're not supposed to talk about like the actual underlying hardware. You're also not to talk, you're not supposed to talk about the ways in which it can limit action. You're not supposed to talk about the ways in which firms like structure and the way in which you actually use the internet. It's supposed to be talked about as this ephemeral medium, which is in a form that just happened right? Because of the market, because of tech, because of its nature, and you just happen to be on it. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, it's this gift of freedom, you know? It's, mm-hmm. the, it's that final frontier um, that we're, that, you know, it's the, the Tim and Eric bit, right? It's, it's free real estate, right. <laughs> you know? And that was kind of how a lot of this was talked about. And I mean, thinking about that dialectical relationship between control and freedom, which, you know, uh, Wendy H.K. Chun in, in, in the book, like, oftentimes will hyphenate it, right? Control hyphen freedom to be like, these two things are in a constant relation with each other. It's not control and freedom or control or freedom. It's control hyphen freedom, control freedom. Uh, you know, almost has a kind of like new speak quality to it, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you got, you got thought crime, you got control freedom, uh, you know, and, and I, and I like that, that way of looking at, you know, uh, counterposing things that are seemingly, se- seemingly opposites with each other. This is, this is just good dialectics, right? You, you got the, the, the thesis and the antithesis, but in reality, those two things are, are joined together at the hip. They look like counterposing forces, but in a lot of ways, they are um, co-productive forces. And, and I think that we have often forgotten a lot about the ways in which many of the things we'll talk about as we go through the book around, uh, you know, the Internet as this like liberty machine, this ultimate uh, engine of freedom, you know, while it seems, a lot of it seems so passe now, right? Like we've moved, in a lot of ways, we've moved beyond that. But that, but that is still baked into the hardware and the software uh, of many of the things that we're having to fucking deal with every day. Like, you know, I was just, you know, just reminding myself that Facebook was founded in 2004. You know, it was founded like a year before this book was published. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I doubt Wendy's going to talk about Facebook or talk about social media in any major way, maybe some MySpace and stuff like that. But a lot of the things that she's talking about are like totally preempted. She, you know, she read the, she read the currents of the time in a really prescient way where, you know, if we, if we remember, right, like Zuckerberg used to talk a lot about like how, 
Facebook was going to bring like world peace because it was going to connect everyone together. It was going to erase all boundaries of geography and territory. It was going to erase all differences of race, class, and gender um, because everybody on Facebook will be so connected with each other that we will just, you know, be one big happy human race uh, joined together through the, the networks and communications and platforms that Zuckerberg, like Prometheus, bringing down to us from the heavens and gifting us with. It's because I took away pokes. Because I took away pokes. <laughs> I mean, is Farmsville still a thing? I could find out. <laughs> I don't think I could log that, in was and a, find that was out. a different, that was a whole different time period of like the Zynga, uh, those games and stuff. I like that she's also, you know, she's setting us up with that kind of, uh, you know, at the beginning of the introduction, you know, she talks about like, we have lived in and still live in exciting times from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the heady days of the dot-com era, from the events of September 11, 2001 to the ongoing turmoil in geopolitical relations. Like, you know, I like that she's kind of bringing in this, this idea of like the kind of the, the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? The, the internet emerging as the remnants of a, of a military university complex. All of these things that are so necessary parts of the short history of the internet um, that, you know, that, that still, still influence us today, but, but because it's normal... We, 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 we forget it. We don't think about it. Like I was reminding myself that the internet as we know it as a kind of privatized, commercialized space happened in like 1993, right? So like Wendy Chun's book is essentially the middle point between now and between the emergence of this privatized, commercialized worldwide web. You're right. Yeah. And, you know, and I think and I think the commercialization really gets undersold because there's also like a real push to to argue that, you know, as there is within general consumer electronics to insist that they are consumer electronics and that the corporations, your private enterprise created them and not through like massive subsidies and benefiting from state research, right? And state intervention and organization of the markets and, and, and relationships and contracts and so on and so forth. But there is a real effort to insist that the internet is like a commercial entity and that these are freedoms and that these are autonomies and that these are liberties that are gifted to us through commerce, through private enterprise, through, and that that means in some way there's a stronger link between like the freedom and and, and autonomy that you want and that we say exists naturally and the spontaneity of the market versus uh, structure and rigor or planning that might occur through the state, right? And, that, and, and that, that should also mean that the only people who are allowed to plan what the internet looks like should be those connected to the economic and the commercial, right? As if they don't have interests that have nothing to do with freedom and autonomy and everything to do with other sets of interests like profits, right? Are ensuring that you know consumers are going to be reliably acting in certain ways or moving through certain uh, areas of the internet so that they can you know make money off of that. 
Yeah, and as we talked about with uh, Dan Green when we when we discussed uh, his his book with him, like you know he he dug up that piece from Al Gore in like an old issue of Scientific American, where Al Gore was laying out the ideological uh, infrastructure of the internet as an explicitly anti-communist, pro-capitalist space, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we always joke, you, you know, there's always that joke that like, oh, Al Gore invented the internet. But in a way, he kind of did, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. He, he invented it in the sense of like providing it with its political economic direction, therefore vastly shaping what it looks like now and, 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 how it, and why and how it emerged as this kind of, uh, yeah, as this system built on this dialectic of control freedom. And and so that leads us to that. So it leads, I think, also, you know, to this weird underbelly structuring of like how how freedom is talked about right? in that opening section where it's like, OK, where you know, I'll read I'll read the paragraph because I think the paragraph sets the tone for the rhetoric also. Right. The Internet conflated with cyberspace was sold as a tool of freedom, as a freedom frontier that by its nature cannot be tamed. The Internet supposedly interpreted censorship as damaged and routed it around it. Further, by enabling anonymous communications, it allegedly freed users from the limitations of their bodies, particularly the limitations stemming from their race, class and sex, and more ominously from social responsibilities and conventions. The Internet also broke media monopolies by enabling the free flow of information, reinvigorating free speech and democracy. It's a supposedly proved that free markets in a friction-free virtual environment could solve social and political problems. Although some condemn the internet for its excessive freedoms, for the ways in which it encouraged so-called deviant behavior that put our future at risk, the majority of the Supreme Court at least, viewed the internet as empowering, as creating users rather than couch potatoes, as inspiring Martin Luther's rather than channel surfers. I'd also be interested to know if she meant Martin Luther, like uh, the monk, was he a monk, the religious motherfucker, <laughs> or, or Martin Luther King Jr., the other religious motherfucker, but the but the one, the black one? That's how I'll distinguish them: the German one or the black one. <laughs> I, I think so. She does mention Martin Luther King Jr. later, so oh. I, I think she does actually mean Martin Luther in terms of the Reformation. Like okay, the idea that's what I was is, wondering too. Because, yeah. Okay. <laughs> The idea is that we all become Martin Luther's and that like we are nailing our theses to the church door. We are inspiring these massive, you know, a massive reformation of the old institutions, right? The old institutions are no longer here because the internet has allowed us to tear down these institutions. Like this is very much echoing, you know, in, in a kind of very ironical uh, tone that she's writing this this chapter or this paragraph in, she's echoing the kind of like John Perry Barlow, uh, you know, like a you know declaration of of independence for cyberspace. The old Grateful Dead lyricist who later became you know the the preeminent cyber libertarian and and founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, along with uh, his buddy Newt Gingrich, uh, you know. Amazing. Newt Gingrich was also one of these in the 90s, like one of the big early proponents of this like cyber ter- cyber libertarian view of the Internet as a, uh, as as Wendy H.K. Uh, Chun puts it, a, a friction free virtual environment where free markets and freedom can uh, can can be nurtured and, and flourish. I mean, where else is Newt Gingrich going to find his next wife? 
<laughs> Shots fired against old big head Newt. <laughs> my man looks like a bobblehead in real life. <laughs> oh my God. He really does. He has too many teeth also. I just want to say that. He's got too many teeth. Rats are huge nugget. Look at the size of that boy's head. Look at the size of that boy's head. Has its own weather system. Has its own weather system. He'll be crying himself to sleep tonight on his huge pillar. Pillar, pillar. it's because he's got too many ideas in his in his head it's blowing up like a like a overblown balloon (laughs) (laughs) oh man all right that's that's our (laughs) we put we put newt gingrich on the fucking dais and just roasted this motherfucker (laughs) (laughs) yeah we need to be nice he did help invent the internet with his old big ass head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I got a five head, and that dude's got a big head. You know, I'm allowed to say that. He also at at the same exact time that the World Wide Web was being born, Newt Gingrich, who you know, leading the Republican revolution uh, in the early '90s against Clinton, also decommissioned the Office of Technology Assessment, which is a congressional office. Um, that did a lot of really good work, and I wish we still had around. But that's that's an ep- that's a that's a topic for a an, a, a later episode of TMK, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, on 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 the history uh, and policy of the Office of Technology Assessment. But going going back to Chun's book, I like that she you know she she talks about like in the in the introduction, right? She says the forms of control the internet enables are not complete. And the freedom we experience stems from these controls. The forms of freedom the internet enables stem from our vulnerabilities, from the fact that we do not entirely control our actions. I think think there's going to be a lot of really interesting reframing and rethinking of how we understand these concepts of control and freedom um, and, and and how they pass through the hardware and the, and the software of, uh, of these new media technologies of the internet, it, it reminds me as well a lot about like you know our episodes around uh, uh, cybersyn in Chile and 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 the kind of cybernetics there, uh, where you know cybernetics is uh, is called the science of command and control. I don't think Chun will make these connections. Um, there just wasn't as good of a history of cybersyn available at this time. It wasn't really, I think, until. Um, you know, the, the work of like people like Eden Medina that really brought that history to our forefront, you know, um, many years later. Uh, but I think we will be able to see and make a lot of connections to those ideas around like what Stafford Beard called the Liberty Machine, right? Which is this idea of like how, you know, how to use these, these systems of, of command and control, these communication technologies and networks um, to produce liberty and autonomy, to do something like uh, democratic control and participation over, you know, the economy. And I think that's a, that will, I think as we go through the book, that will offer us a really nice 
a counterexample to what this capitalist internet looks like uh, that that will be you know really looking at the you know the the kind of an earlier history of it's so funny to talk about history in terms of something that happened 15 years ago you right. know, or 20 years ago like like especially because i know you uh you had you've been tearing through the graber and Wingrove book because you 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 got a fucking advanced copy of it you you ahead of all of us um but you know Compared there, that conception of history at, at a scale of, you know, of tens of thousands of years compared to the, this history of the internet at a scale of, uh, uh, you know, two decades. <laughs> yeah, I think also it's, um, I mean, history is history, you know, it's in the past. It's a ghost that's, you know, fucking haunting us. It's also like never left us, right? Like I feel you on that, but also it's like all these things are still there. They still are kind of limited by the same bad analyses. Because in many ways, tech companies and their their newfound power has been able to, I think, to turn back and regress all some of the analysis and thinking on top of other larger trends that have like prevented people from wanting to extend their analyses in the mainstream, at least, to technology critically, right? And that as a result has made all of us kind of worser for where. So we do need to look at the history because you know like you know for some people like they you know the world began with facebook and for some people the world you know started um you know last year or the year before the year before that because they like have their their eyes and their attention really focused on like narrow developments around like a specific company or a specific development we're we're cursed with a a, a kind of myopia uh, you know, a, a, a nearsightedness, a short-sightedness, um, a, a, a kind of cultural amnesia as well. That it, it, yeah, it does seem like we live our lives on a scale of years or months um, rather than a much larger timeline. And that's also one reason why I'm just I'm excited to go to to really dive into this book because it will be this uh, uh, this picture, you know, this snapshot. Of a, of a time that will seem so both familiar and so foreign at the same time, right? Even even her discussion of things like packet sniffers just sounds so like, yes. you know, so an- antiquated, right? Like It feels like <laughs> I am playing Metal Gear Solid, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> That's dude. That's the reference is feeling. <laughs> I mean, like a, a total uh, product of that time was the show 24 and like half the show was spent with the uh, computer people. Like I'm accessing the the packet sniffer and I'm, I'm, down, I'm downloading the kernel and all this other shit that I'm like, I have no fucking clue what they're talking about. It's like they're, they're <laughs> speaking, they're speaking English, but it's a language that I don't recognize. They're talking about the future. <laughs> and they're talking about the future or think about shows like csi las vegas and stuff like that right like i think all of this will be really interesting to see as well how much of that like techno babble seems so funny because it seems so old-fashioned even though it wasn't that long ago hacker voice oh man, oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. i think they've spotted me and it's like yeah okay that's how <laughs> that's how it works um but even her uh like description of packet sniffers is all very interesting because i think it also it shows that so much of what we talk about with like surveillance and data collection and all of that is um is so baked into the uh in into the internet as a as a system right it's it's a it's the politics you know going back to our our boy winner, right? It's the, te- it's the technological politics encoded into the design of the system and the maintenance of that system. 
You know, so she says like, your screen with its windows and background suggests that your computer only sends and receives data at your request. It suggests that you are that all-powerful user Microsoft invoked to sell its Internet Explorer by asking, quote, where do you want to go today? Using a packet sniffer, however, you can see that your computer constantly wanders without you, even when you are not using your computer or even when you are not using it. Your computer sends and receives, stores and discards, that is, reads, packets, which mostly ask and respond to the question, can you read me? <laughs> Verizon, can you hear me now? That's what your computer is oh, doing fuck. constantly. <laughs> no. No. Uh, these packets are anything but transparent to you, the user. Not only must you install a sniffer to see them, you must also translate them from hexadecimal. That is, if your operating system allows you to install a, stif- a sniffer, which classic Macs do not. I, I like this as well. Like our, our um, and, and we'll get into this very shortly. I think we've forgotten the like the culture comf, right? The the cultural the culture war, culture struggle um, that existed between different operation systems, right? Different OSs, right? Like, are you a Mac? Are you a Microsoft? Are you Linux? Right? And all of these came embedded with them, like a a certain model of of a of a subject. Right, a certain subject of an internet user, of a computer user, was all dictated by you know these identities that these companies like you know Apple and Microsoft or these collectives, you know, like like a uh, new Linux, um, were trying to sell you this idea of of you as a particular kind of subject um, who interacts with the internet in a very specific way. Right. I think also, you know, all of this does bring to term, you know, or as it's, as she's fleshing out this idea of how these control systems are not only just kind of smuggled in through the language and also through the infrastructure and the technology, but also like go on to, to, to shape the way in which we consciously interact with each other, right? Like to have... To have, as she puts it, like that active um, client si- uh, server model makes it so that, like, okay, the the dynamic is so you're only getting or you're only receiving or sending out specific data at specific times, right? And so, as as, as she puts it, this active reading reveals that for now, the data is cheap and reproducible in ways that defy rather than support private property. Although those lobbying for stronger copyright roles have also argued that every electronic reading potentially infringes copyright for the same reason. This machine reading makes our digital traces resilient, right? And so, the resiliency, it, like she as she talks about, it seems to be going against like that core logic of markets of commodifying of figuring out the profit incentive, but by making your digital traces lasting, by encouraging you to, and also at the same time, by encouraging you to go onto the internet and create these communities or carve out, you know, where you're going to go, it ends up creating like an even richer infrastructure, a richer system for figuring out, okay, this is how we're going to make the money off of people. This is how we're going to profit. This is how we're going to structure things instead of just coming in from the beginning and giving people a prepackaged pre-formulated prison, right? Like the, the freedom is embedded insofar as it seems a lever to, or as a tool to help build the basis for control systems. Yeah. And, and like 
earlier in that paragraph you just quoted from, she she talks about how like the client server model of the World Wide Web, um, you know, aside, which is sometimes also called a master slave model as well, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in which your computer, the client or the slave, only receives data from machines designated as servers or masters. Uh, the, the, but this, as she puts it, is a, is a software and cultural construction. Mm-hmm. There's nothing inevitable about the design of the World Wide Web that it needs to be a client-server model, You know, a very top-down vertical relationship rather than a kind of decentralized horizontal relationship. This is instead... Uh, you know, a software construction and a cultural construction all, all wrapped up in one. It's one model of how this can be done, but it's a model that uh, becomes a mythology. Uh, and, and like all good mythologies, they're meant to be unquestioned, right? You just accept it, right? That's the myth. And, and, and you know, she talks about I, 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 you know, the, di- the dialectical materialist in me is just overjoyed in the way that she's constantly putting relations together. Uh, So she talks about how, like, uh, quote, the internet as an unfailing surveillance device is thus the obverse or the other side of the coin, not the opposite of the internet as an agency-enhancing marketplace. For it, too, gives purpose, maps as volitional and permanent, non-volitional and uncertain software-dependent interactions. The myth also screens the impossibility of storing, accessing, and analyzing everything. Even the U.S. National Security Agency, or NSA, admits this impossibility, which is why its intercept equipment automatically stores encrypted packets. And I, I like this, you know, and this this starts getting into a, an argument that she is, you know, is going to be a theme throughout the, the rest of the book is this idea of also that, you know, it's in the subtitle, right, that, that relationship between power and paranoia, right? She's talking about how, like, uh, it's impossible for, you know, the NSA, even, even you know, Take into account that this book was published like seven or eight years before the Snowden revelations where we really learn the extent of what the NSA was doing and its partnerships with uh, Silicon Valley tech companies. But even then, even with those revelations, like it's impossible for the NSA to monitor everything, right? To capture all the packets, um, to to uh, to to analyze all the data, uh, to keep a, a, a constraint on all the flows of communications. It's impossible. It doesn't prevent them from trying, but uh, it, it does also fuel a paranoia um, that kind of stands in or makes up for that lack of power that they have right because if you if you believe they have the power whether it's the NSA or Alphabet or whoever right Amazon if you believe they have the power and you act accordingly then by all intents and purposes they they do have the power right they kind of they trade on that paranoia they want to instill that paranoia this is this is like you know this is how uh intelligence agencies work right like the FBI and the CIA the police right like the NSA the DHS you know all these three letter organizations they work in part by in stealing a paranoia in you of them as these 
omniscient, omnipresent entities, even though they are at the end of the day, uh, valuable and often uh, stupid humans. And I think this bleeds nicely also to your discussions of control systems, right? Talking about those paranoid no those uh, those paranoid narratives she talks about, right? Where it's like, okay, can we have total surveillance? No. Well, can we have total freedom? No, right? That there need there is some need for procedures or processes that limit and and track the data and as in a way so that users can interact and so the system in of itself can have a, have a flowing exchange of information right and then the problems control okay to what degree we're we going to pursue control and surveillance over freedom and agency right and that when she when she you know goes to the control societies and Deleuze's postscript on control societies I go wow this is this is only the second text in which Deleuze is invoked. And understood the first one, of course, being yours. Where <laughs> that was the first time someone explained to me what actually is going on here. But I think, um, but I am interested in her discussion of Foucault a bit, right? Where she's where she's talking about disciplinary uh, societies, right? And she's and she talks about his difference and his distinguishing between disciplinary and sovereign power, right? That sovereign power is, is embodied in the physical existence of the sovereign, right? Who, who she says operates the powers in spectacles, even if they're not continuous spectacles, they're still spectacles. And that is just inflict death. While disciplinary power is visible, but not verifiable at all times. And it, and it, well, you know, fabricates individuals through isolation and constant examination, right? And it, and it becomes power over life. You know, thinking through as she goes on to, you know, thinking through Foucault's analysis, right, and contrasting it with, uh, with Deleuze's about how confinement, about how mass individuation, about how these things are Im- are control systems or end up being methods of control, right, as opposed to are distinguished from the disciplinary society. Like it also makes me think about, I guess, the the ways in which. These shifts also manifest in the rhetoric about what type of internet we need, right? Is the internet that we need one where we have a community or we have order? Is it an internet where you are able to be yourself or one where um, you can um, be whoever you want to be? Is it one where uh, you are... You know, free to explore, learn anything, or to do things within reason, right? So that you, so that you don't disrupt the order of things, and which, and which one, or which, which, uh, which poles is the discourse or the main actors like tugging it towards, right? I think she she writes, control society is not necessarily better or worse than disciplinary society. Rather, it introduces new liberating and enslaving forces. Whereas disciplinary society relied on independent variables or molds, control society thrives on inseparable variations and modulations. Factories have given way to businesses with souls focused on metaproduction and on destroying unions through inexorable rivalry. Schools have given way to continuing education and constant assessment. New prison techniques simultaneously offer greater freedom of movement and more precise tracking. And the new medicine 
without doctors and patients' identities, uh, identifies potential uh, cases and subjects at risk without attempting treatment. According to Deleuze, he saw form a system of varying geometry whose language is digital, though not necessarily binary, and the computer with its emphasis on information and its reduction of the individual to the password epitomizes control societies. Digital language makes control systems invisible. We no longer experience the visible yet unverifiable gaze, but a network of non-visualizable digital control, you know, which she brings back to the paranoia narrative that I thought was interesting, right? That even though this is a compelling framework, to think about things that it's still at the end, it's still rhyming with what she's talking about this 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 paranoia about what is going to happen or how the internet is going to be deployed and how people are going to exist on it because it's a new medium and a mass medium right is it going to be used for control is it going to be used to discipline is it going to be to used to liberate is it going to be used to enslave this was a a, a section in the book that was really enlightening to to me the way she kind of brings in again that theme of paranoia and saying that you know even though you know para, you know the the Foucauldian disciplinary you know panopticon um overestimated the power of that kind of of that public power of publicity as she puts it right that power of being seen so too uh she argues that the kind of you know, control freedom analysis of Deleuze overestimates the power of these control systems. I found that really interesting, and it, it, it rhymes as well very much with what, are, what we talked about in the free episode um, about, like, you know, uh, Lauren Cowie Gurley's, uh, you know, reporting on the Netrodyne system and the, the, the glitchiness of of that control system, right? That is a, that is a, Netrodyne is a, uh, an example par excellence of a control technology meant to, you know, both merge the panoptical, uh, watching, but merge it with that kind of control system of it's not just that you might be watched, but it's that there's an AI there that is always watching, right? Like that's that's that kind of transition from the, you know, a, a, dis, a disciplinary Foucauldian version of Netrodyne would just be you telling the driver, someone could be watching you at all times, right? Your manager could be, you know, in a big room full of uh, uh, computer screens, uh, you know, tapping into your camera and could be watching you at all times. So you better behave as if you are being watched. <laughs> or, else. or else. Yeah, you better behave as if you are being watched. The transition of what makes that of what makes Netrodyne an innovation, makes it disruptive, uh, is a transition to a more Deleuzian model of control where it's not a person that could be watching you, it's an AI that is watching you, right? They are watching you at all times. And if you, uh, if, if you, if you transgress against the AI's uh, parameters that it sets up, then it will punish you, right? You are free to move. You are free to do your job. Uh, you are free to be you as long as you remain within the confines and constraints of the parameters that the AI system is policing. Uh, and that, that is the, that's, you know, that's a kind of De, uh, Foucauldian versus Deleuzian analysis of Netrodyme. Now, if we bring in Chun here, which I think we, we, we ought to, she says, um, quote, 
This is not to say that Deleuze's analysis is not correct, but rather that it, like so many other analyses of technology, unintentionally fulfills the aims of control by imaginatively ascribing to control power that it does not yet have, and by erasing its failures. Thus, in order to understand control freedom, we need to insist on the failures and the actual operations of technology. We also need to understand the difference between freedom and liberty, since control, though important, is only half of the story. I like this idea that we have to insist upon the failures and the actual operations of these technologies, which, you know... Uh, I, I don't know if, Lore, if Lauren knew that she was being so Chunian uh, in her analysis and reporting on Netrodyne. Um, and, and also, uh, I could say that we planned this duo of episodes this week right. to be so perfectly uh, you know, dovetailing with each other. Um, re- listener, we, we did we not. Did not. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, 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 a very nice synchronicity. Um, but to go to Chun's analysis... Uh, it's not that Netrodyne, uh, we have to be fear, we have to be wary of ascribing to systems like Netrodyne the power that they claim to have um, in their marketing copy, yeah. their training yeah. videos, um, and instead uh, insist upon understanding the, the failure of those technologies, the paranoia that they are designed to instantiate in all of us. Um, but that's also not to say, and Chun would agree with this, that just because a technology doesn't fail doesn't mean it doesn't have power, and nor does it mean that uh, it doesn't exercise power through its failure, right? Like we saw with Netrodyne how just because it's a valuable technology prone to glitches and errors, uh, the outcomes of those glitches and errors are still uh, exceedingly material um, and consequential. Yeah, I mean, and I think that this the skepticism is always, always warranted because believing in their narratives, right, not only has not only cost us in terms of allowing the things to proliferate, but also makes messy the, our ability to then think through as as Chun is trying to do here through okay, like what in a world where this or that does or doesn't exist, does freedom or liberty look like, right? She spends some time trying to lay out the basis of of the differences between freedom or liberty, you know, that, you know, kind of saying that liberty is to be liberated for something, you know, freedom is, you know, self-determining and autonomous. And you can pretty easily imagine scenarios in which if you have, a society that is dominated by control systems, liberty and freedom look very different than a society that is dominated by discipline, right? Or alternatively, if we are not clear in our analysis of what the power is, not of how you, people are being watched, how power is being mediated, how control is being instituted, what types of autonomy are being allowed and what structures are in the place, then it becomes hard to figure out what do we want to be liberated from and to do what do we, yeah, and, or what do we want to be liberated from and what do we want to be free to? You know, if we, we have to articulate what are the limits of our actions, right? And the limitations on our decisions and the things that we're forced to do and not, or not allowed to do to begin with, right? Which is hard to do if, as she, you know, spends some time at the beginning doing, if, if we don't, you know, take great pains to kind of flesh out what the control element looks like, right? You know, I think also it's interesting when she goes on to kind of talk about 
right before the section on sexuality, like how now the ways, some of the ways in which we want ourselves to be free is, you know, as commodities that, you know, freedom is supposed to resonate with freedom is supposed to resonate on an economic level, right? She, she, she invokes what then at the time was George Bush's tripartite uh, model, right? She says it hijacks the civil rights uh, movement, uh, liberty, uh, equality of fraternity, now freedom, democracy, free enterprise, right? That this model hijacks the civil rights movement, erases equality and fraternity, and makes ambiguous the subject of freedom. And so Bush asserts that the concept of free trade arose as a moral principle even before it became a pillar of economics. If you can make something that others value, you should be able to sell it to them. If others make something that you value, you should be able to buy it. This is real freedom, the freedom of a person, of a nation, to make a living. And and this, as she closed out the section, rhymes with Karl Marx's condemnation of bourgeois freedom. In a bourgeois society, right? Capital is independent and has individuality, while the living person is dependent and has no individuality. By freedom is meant under the present bourgeois conditions of production, free trade, free selling, and free balance. And so this again also becomes something as we talked about, it becomes increasingly a world of by, for, and of corporations and immortal persons and digital constructions and less and less for the people, right? So profits over people. You know, legal fictions over people and and prioritizing a landscape and a geography that allows them freedom of move, movement through capital you know capital flows freedom of movement and labor restricted to very narrow confines right our freedom to be to be forgotten right in the sense that like you you can be obscured uh, uh, from scrutiny from analysis from being read really uh, if you have enough of this commodified, of this commodity or enough of a connection to capital. Whereas like if you're an actual person, no, no, no. Like for the whole thing to work, you need to be, you need to be, uh, you know, pliant. You need to be there for uh, the market. You need to be there for the apparatuses of power to do the work on, to be molded, uh, to be shaped and operated and plugged into already pre-established confines or to be allowed in narrow confines to develop the mold yourself, right? Much of the way like a bacteria or yeast would fill some pre-established confine and make very colorful, creative, or um, beautiful branchings, but still be confined within those those boundaries. I love those kinds of like comparisons of like quoting George Bush and then immediately quoting Karl Marx and being like, <laughs> see? See, that shit, it's the same 200 right. years later. And that ideology is still the same. Like mm-hmm. George Bush literally just espousing uh, bourgeois freedom that Karl Marx like diagnosed and critiqued at the, in the almost exact terms. It's, it's like, I think there was a, a an old stay, a, a, like an old joke from like the, like the Reagan era. A communist is someone who reads Marx and Lenin. Uh, a, a capitalist is someone who understands Marx and Lenin. <laughs> 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 wow. It's like, damn, shit. <laughs> Bush is a, a speechwriter who who might be who might have at that time been David Frum, who's now like a big Atlantic um, columnist and essayist, but an enemy. He, an Not enemy. a friend of the show. Absolutely an enemy <laughs> of the show. Um, but you know, might might have been reading some marks and being like, damn, this this dude has a way with words. This is this is spitting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like as well, before we wrap up this section, 
John also has a way with words. She's a she's a brilliant writer. She's such a like uh, smart writer. It's it's always a joy to read people like John or people like Winner. Um, you know, we 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 choosing books here that are not only uh, good thinking but good style, good good substance and good style. Uh, she writes. In an odd extension of commodity fetishism, we now wish to be as free as our commodities. By freeing markets, we free ourselves. <laughs> it's like that—that's a fucking epigraph. If I ever maybe heard one. maybe we've been approaching it wrong this whole time, dude. Maybe we free need your to- mind and your ass will follow. Yeah, dude. The new Matrix is going to be about how they're they're liberating markets uh, instead of their minds. Right? They're gonna fr- they're gonna bring capitalism to the matrix like super capitalism to the matrix and they're going to accelerate it and it's and it's going to make everyone free the matrix four brought to you by diapers.com oh no <laughs> i mean oh, maybe no. <laughs> though maybe because i you know nick land you know uh <laughs> executive producer <laughs> i mean nick i mean the matrix was a lot of that nick land shit uh for sure the original and if you saw the trailer for the fourth one they're leaning really heavy into the red pill blue pill dichotomy yeah. as well and it's just mm-hmm. like it's like really with all the cultural connotation that red pilling has now you guys are just gonna lean real hard into red pill and, and uh, part red of me pill is or just like no it's ours you can't fucking have it can't fucking have it. We it's our word. <laughs> yeah, it's our <laughs> phrase. They're taking it back, man. Yeah, yeah, they're taking it back. This is what they took from us. The next section of the introduction, which, you know, the the introduction here is giving us some broad outlines of what's to come in the in the book itself. Right. So we're kind of moving through, you know, broad sections, laying out the, you know, the 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 overarching themes of analysis that, you know, Chun will be diving into deeper and individual chapters. But, you know, she she's got a large section here looking at sexuality you know, in, in part, that is um, looking at, as she writes, right, uh, the relationship between control and freedom in terms of fiber optics networks is often experienced as sexuality or is mapped in terms of sexuality paranoia. And I, I'm I'm excited for this because I don't think it's something that we have that we really think a lot about, which is like the role that sexuality and what she calls pornocracy uh, or this way. Um, that like through through cyber porn and especially around like paranoia about pornography on the internet was used as a pretense by the government to attempt to regulate um, the internet uh, in certain ways and as a pretense by like uh, you know right wing evangelical groups that still have a lot <laughs> an immense amount of power in this country uh, in the United States. Um, but, uh, and, and also in Australia as well, uh, but, but have, have this power to really dictate cult, like culture through policy. And the internet, of course, uh, was, was a, was a huge, you know, battleground for that around like pornography, uh, around, you know, is the internet becoming this, uh, you know, this 
this space of depravity uh, or depravity uh, and, and what that means, right? She says, quote, cyber porn fueled the dot-com craze. In terms of censorship and surveillance, sexuality encapsulated and sequestered and still encapsulates and still sequesters the risk of being online. Anxiety over or desire for online contact is expressed as anxiety over or desire for sexual exposure. Before September 11th, 2001, those seeking to censor the internet through public or private means claimed without fail to be protecting children from the seamier sides of human sexuality. Now, this is very interesting where like, you know, 9-11 is this kind of a paradigm shift where it went from, you know, about, about security, about national security, um, about tracking down, you know, terrorists and hackers and, and the, you know, those kinds of figures uh, uh, looming large. But before that, you know, in like the 90s, there was like so, so much of the, the discourse around regulating the internet and censoring it in some ways uh, was about pornography. And, and, and I, I think that that hasn't gone away. Like I, I found some, I found my mind, you know, uh, wandering towards like QAnon, right? Like, uh, you know, the, there's these, uh, uh, you know, bands of pedophiles, uh, who, who we need to, you know, we need what well, one of the, one of the mottos for QAnon is save the children. Right. And so it's just very interesting to see how that still persists. It's changed over time, but, that has always been part of this kind of culture war around this this communication technology. Um, is you know is it a place of of depravity? Um, is it a case or, or a place where uh, you know child predators roam large? And if so, shouldn't we do everything in our power to control the control system? Yeah, you know, and it's it's and it's also really interesting the articulation where. It's like new technology is a carrier, a new Trojan horse for pornography, and sex is a virus that always, that almost always infects new technology first. As she captures well, it's like it's it's the it's like sexuality and, the, and sex work and and the anxieties and paranoia about it that also dominate the ways in which some of the control systems develop. Right? Whether it's like you know the origins, the advents of you know who gets shadow banned first or who. Or who gets like deplatformed first, right? The, these are these are long-standing patterns and techniques that persist from earlier centuries and earlier systems. That also, she says, because of their role in censorship or their role in forming the paranoia, or forming the, the way in which the control is going to be used and surveillance is going to be justified, right? Uh, to protect the social body, what, or you know, as Foucault would talk about the rationalization that people gave uh, for being for their paranoias and anxieties about uh, sexuality, right? You know, like this also bears a pretty tight connection to how biopower was wielded, you know, power of life was wielded with racism in the 20th century, as Chunt writes, and also, you know, how, how it manifests or can manifest in other forms of suppression um, and discrimination on the internet, right? That you know, time and time again, what we see is that people who are at the margins are usually the ones that this technology, which is made with their labor, 
um, and made without their input is, uh, is, ho- is home to a host of anxieties about their influence, right? And so they are then kept out, locked out inadvertently, not in, or maybe inadvertently is not the right word, but the war against them. The war to minimize them, to discriminate against them, to exclude them, and to punish them and define them also accelerates the development of these systems into controls into systems that are all about surveillance, total surveillance, total control, right? Total discipline, total uh, structuring and limitation of freedom in the name of uh, the advancement of unfreedom, as she puts it earlier, in the in pursuit of freedom, right? That it's only after we can get rid of these elements the social body or the body politic, that we can have a good, clean, orderly, wholesome, whatever the fuck they want, internet. And so, yeah, you have to bear with us in this eternal forever war that we're going to wage against sex workers, that we're going to wage against uh, black people, that we're going to wage against like this or that group because they are problematic or because they are inconvenient or because they're coming up to works or because they don't properly represent our values and this or this or that or the third. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And after this book came out, Chun actually had a really great essay, um, which would be some nice supplementary reading if anybody is interested, called uh, Race and Slash as Technology or How to Do Things with Race. Um, And she, she has done a lot of really interesting work on the kind of techno scientific underpinnings of our, our very conceptions of race. Um, and how racism manifests through early, you know, scientific ideas about diff- you know, differences in uh, in race, uh, you know, and people as, uh, as as somehow fundamentally different just based on their skin pigmentation and and all of the kind of pseudoscience underpinning that up until you know uh, today, you know, thinking about race as a form of technology itself, right? Um, as this like kind of this. You know this this social and cultural construct uh, that you know humans have invented, like they've invented other forms of technology and willed it, like they do other forms of technology. Uh, you know, very very interesting, and and I think very interesting to also counterpose that as well with these like uh, you know all things that we know are now bullshit, right? We know like that things like you know digital redlining or uh, in, inherent encoded you know, bias in algorithms, you know, all this stuff that we constantly hear about. Um, Now, it wasn't that long ago that people really took seriously that old New Yorker cartoon of no one on the internet knows you're a dog, right? Like, like (laughs) this idea that like, you know, you can be so anonymous on the internet that, you know, as we talked about, right, you can transcend all boundaries of geography, class, race, sex, gender, right? All of that doesn't matter on the internet. All things that we know are fucking bullshit, but also things we know are bullshit in large part because of the, the very hard work of, of people who have uh, made, sought to make that bullshit. You know, like people like Zuckerberg, right? We've talked about the, that, that early quote from Zuckerberg um, around how like it's, uh, what, what does he say? It's like, uh, it's an example of, of, you know, having more than one, more than one identity online. I forget the term he used. It was, uh, you know, having more than one personality online is, uh, it's, uh, it's dishonest or something along those lines. I think you're right. It it, would, it really seemed like it was going after like drag performers, (laughs) you know, because drag performers not using their real names on, 
on Facebook. So that, you know, having two example, having two identities for yourself as an example, I'll read the whole thing nicely. Having two identities for yourself is an example of a lack of integrity. Right. You have one ex- you have one identity. The days of you having a different image for your work friends or coworkers or for other people you know are probably coming to an end pretty quickly. Yeah. So that's that's what it is, right? It's a Insane. lack of integrity <laughs> to have more than one identity. Says to not the man <laughs> with like a massive PR team to make him seem more human because of how bad he is with <laughs> with with communicating in a way that doesn't come off as condescending or or you know antagonistic or schmuck and all this is coming from a guy who just whose original intention for the website was was a misogynistic is this girl hot or not website yeah yeah he was just in college man he was just a kid <laughs> he was just a 23 year old kid <laughs> running a bit long. So let's quickly jump to the final two sections of the introduction here, where Chun is on one hand laying out a really interesting analysis of, uh, of, of software and ideology, right? Like really trying to make us think about soft, you know, software in terms of ideology. And, 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 you know, and, and, and she mentions Right, she says that like user control dwindles as this is on page 19 at the very top. User control dwindles as one moves down the software stack. Software itself dwindles since everything reduces to voltage differences or signifiers. Although one code soft although one codes software and by using another software program reads non-compiled code, one cannot see software. Software cannot be physically separated from hardware, only ideologically. The term digital media stresses hardware for switches and vacuum tubes determine the difference between analog and discrete computation. Software has no intrinsic value and the software and the concept of software itself has changed over time. Now this is really interesting and I like that she's drawing a, a very materialist analysis here of being like this distinction between hardware as the physical thing and software as the digital thing um, is a false distinction. You cannot disentangle them only, only through ideology can you disentangle them. But also, I you know have to admit that I, I didn't know this, but the original terminology or the uh, the original uh, definition of software was any part of the computer that was moldable or changeable. Uh, and so this also included, you know, what we think of as hardware, right? The physical materiality uh, of the of the computer. If it was changeable and moldable, then it was also software. It's only very recently that this hard distinction between uh, the you know hardware as material and software as digital has become our like our our, our normal way of understanding these things. And a large part of that is also this idea that like you know what the user has the freedom and does not have the freedom to control, right? The, to, to, to mold, to program, to change. That, that alone is, I mean, very interesting, right? Uh, a very interesting kind of distinction. And one, like I said, that I, I just, 
I, I have to admit I didn't know about, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I like that, you know, on the next page, she then goes on to talk about uh, what, what, uh, what I mentioned earlier in the episode about how, you know, each operating system in its uh, advertisements interpolates a user calls it and offers it a name or an image with which to identify. So Mac users think different and identify with Martin Luther King and Albert Einstein. Linux users are open source power geeks drawn to the image of a fat sated penguin. And Windows users are mainstream functionalist types comforted by their regularly crashing computers. <laughs> <laughs> I like the broad swipe against Microsoft again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, importantly, the choices, and choices is in quotes here, the choices operating systems offer limit the visible and the invisible, the imaginable and the unimaginable. I mean, again, very just very interesting how she's drawing out this um this this analysis of software and ideology and how something like an operating system has within it uh, deep deep ideologies that interpolate or or call into existence certain types of users. Yeah, you know, and I think that also more going on to develop like some of that language. I think also more, I mean, she talks a bit about the language of like users and calling things like user-friendly cynically or preferences cynically when like the reality is they're obscuring a reality. They're obscuring a situation in where you are, you are not really given much choice and the preferences uh, given before you are narrow, hard-coded options you get to flick between and that it's user friendly because like it's dumbed down and it's very uh bare bones or it's very limited and that's user friendly not like not representative of human beings which are infinitely rich in uniqueness and idiosyncrasies you know in diversity like going on also to develop this point by uh, Peter Slaughterdyke that uh, Zizek invokes, where he argues that ideology's dominant mode of functioning is cynical. They know very well what they are doing, but still they are doing it. It is through this continual doing, this using, this externalization of our beliefs onto objects that act for us that ideology operates, right? And so that this, it so it ends up being that yeah, you know, like Microsoft is also defining users and it's user friendly, but it's also creating a user by that, right? I mean, this is like user has pre has connotations already with it. Uh, as she goes on to talk about how like there's a connotation with drug use, with addiction, that users are are, are not impediments for the software. It's the soft, and so they're 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 supposed to be reproduced, and users are supposed to be reproduced as things that make it as easy as possible for the software to operate, essentially, right? And that this all of this suggests or helps contribute to. Uh, relationships, dynamics that um, that create that sort of false consciousness she talks about when she invokes the Matrix example, right? Where the world is literally duped by the software, right? Um, and literally tricked into believing one thing as a, as opposed to the reality, right? That you know, ideology is thought of as a false consciousness, as a false conception of reality that can be disrupted, but is a false one. And then the matrix, you know, you're, you are given a kind of false consciousness that prevents everybody from really seeing what's real, which is the devastated world left over from the war with the machines, right? 
And so, you know, reading through that, that, that invocation of the, of, of media to talk about media is, is interesting thinking through like how, okay, you know, the images and the pictures and the narratives presented by software companies obscure that software companies are producing you as much as they're saying that you're coming to us because you're this different type of person. In reality, they're trying, they're looking to uh, craft a certain type of person, right, for their own benefit, both as the youth, both as the experience of the product, but also as a, as a necessity out of you know constructing a market, constructing a demographic, constructing an audience, constructing a reliable base of users, um, and also on some level, eventually, because they do believe some of the things they say about their users, about the audience, about the demographic, like and maybe really thinking that Mac users are different. That Linux users are different. That Microsoft users are different, and as such, we need to also uh, enforce that. I know she'll dive more into this, but just you know, the the very interesting, yeah, these these comparisons between software and ideology, and she she tries to drawing a a, a complete one to one analogy, right? That like. Uh, insisting on software, as she writes, insisting on software as ideology par excellence excellently drains ideology of meaning and reduces it to an act of programming, which can be reprogrammed by individuals come hackers. And this is that hacker or that matrix reference that she brings in there, right? It's just like this libertarian idea that like, if we can hack into the system, the operating system of reality, then we can reprogram it, right? But it's like, that's not how ideology works, right? It's like a much more complex thing uh, than just a, a piece of software um, that's all uploaded into our brains. 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 Getting us to the final section of the introduction here, uh, we're gonna, you know, we're hitting on the 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 next big theme of the book, which is something you um, drew us to at the very top of the show, uh, and it's 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 that really that understanding of the infrastructure and the hardware of the internet as a medium, right? Um, and you know, it's something we talk about, of course. Uh, on TMK at least, and there's something that there's like a kind of growing, it's called like infrastructure studies in academia, this kind of growing interdisciplinary focus on on researching infrastructure uh, and logistics, you know, not just the internet, but but larger sense. But, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, I think Chan was, was very much ahead of the curve in looking, you know, in working within like new media studies, but really being like, we need to focus on the hardware, on the on the infrastructure. Like, you know, in that in that last session on software, she kind of wrote a bit of a broadside against what was bubbling at that time in, in the in media studies, which was a subfield called software studies, right? And she was really kind of writing a you know a, a sympathetic and kind critique of that focus, being like, you know, yes, but that distinction between software and hardware is is an ideological one like we really also need to not just understand the internet as you know what we do now is like the cloud some ephemeral thing but as fundamentally a system of of of, of wires uh and pipes and you know all of that hard material stuff that actually does really matter a whole lot and so she talks about how 
you know, even though technology is not a simple cause, examining its structures and its emergence closely can help us understand our current situation, which is why this book concentrates on and takes inspiration from fiber optics networks. Uh, which, you know, side note here that like, while this book was, you know, written, you know, 15, 16 years ago, the talking about fiber networks is still hyper relevant. Like, you know, we will, we'll do an episode uh, of TMK at some point on the, like the Australian national broadband network and similar kinds of uh, fiber plans in the U S around like Google fiber and stuff, Soft right? Like banks, fiber, banks, fiber. Jupiter, which was this consortium with uh, friends of the show, like uh, Facebook a soft bank and more yeah Some shit out of do sex machina yeah exactly and and like there is still so much investment and attention and failure around trying to bring <laughs> fiber connections to uh people not just in the you know in less developed parts of the world but people in like the you know uh, highly wealthy, rich countries like the U.S. and Australia, right? Like, and she talks about how, like, theoretically, fiber optics networks work based on the fundamental paradox of light. In them, light is both wave and particle. Lasers emit particle-like light, whereas the glass transports wave-like light. Fiber optics networks thus represent the theoretical necessity of using rather than resolving paradoxes. Boom. Dialectics right there as well. I had no idea this book was going to be so dialectical, and I'm, I'm just like, I'm bubbling with excitement here. <laughs> we have, we're getting, we're going to, don't worry, we'll have some anarchist representation in the next few. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's but it there. is good. It's really good. I, I've enjoyed reading this book, and the methodology where she goes through things is really... Like truly and I don't. I would like, not count Chun as a Marxist either. I don't think yeah. she would consider herself a Marxist. Yeah. But she's doing good, like dialectical, like cultural theory and social theory. Um, but but she did actually talk about a little bit of anarchism at the um, earlier around like uh, copyright and piracy mm -hmm. and software. Uh, later on the end of, of page twenty six, she brings in um, uh, Gert Lovink, uh, who's a Dutch. Uh, new media theorist who definitely has theorized what he he called he wrote this thing called the telecommunist manifesto mm -hmm. <laughs> which is trying to theorize a kind of like like com it's actually quite a nice uh document of him trying to do like a a response to like this the cyber libertarian like declaration of cyberspace independence but instead conceiving of like what would a manifesto for a like anarchist communist kind of like commune model of the internet look like so so we're, we're getting into the some of that anarchism there for you ed don't don't worry <laughs> <laughs> well, i have no worries i have no worries <laughs> But she, she talks about how, like, um, and this is something I had no idea. In fact, I'm just going to read uh, this paragraph, and we can wrap up the episode on this paragraph, because this was another tidbit that I just did not know about. The age of fiber optics is quickly being displaced by wireless technologies, which also preceded it. Wireless technologies open up the possibility of touch of being constantly caressed or bombarded by the signals around us. Signals that only 
some connectors can translate into a signal. Wireless technology's dominance in the, in the South, and here she's talking about the global South, where infrastructure costs are high, is also a result of geopolitics. Viewed by some as a case of technological leapfrogging, which means those poorer countries avoid the mistakes of more advanced countries by moving immediately toward more advanced technologies, this phenomenon leaves its frogs more vulnerable to both the effects of nuclear war and surveillance. Fiber optics replaced copper in key systems, not only because of their speed, but also because of their insensitivity to electromagnetic pulse. Fiber optics cables do not radiate energy. Because fiber optics cables are also difficult to tap mechanically, and because they are usually buried, they offer a more secure and reliable form of communication than wireless or copper. The United States and the United Kingdom bombed Iraq in February 2001 when it oh, tried no. to complete a Chinese-engineered fiber optics network. February 2001. Coincidence. <laughs> seven months before 9-11, the U.S. and the U.K. were bombing Iraq coincidentally when they were going to do some fiber optics laying. <laughs> coincidence. It was a huge, it's such a massive coincidence. Why would we ever, ever get in the way of tech? I mean, let this be a lesson to you. America's always up to some shady ass shit. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. But I just love that being like, uh, yeah, the U.S. and the U.K. bombed Iraq in February 2001, and and not not after 9/11, seven months before. <laughs> like, uh -huh, uh -huh. We forget because we've been made to forget that uh, Bush Jr. was just fulfilling what his daddy failed to do by uh, bombing Iraq to hell, do it, you know, and ousting Saddam Hussein, right? Like uh, Iraq, which. Had you know, how how did Iraq get wrapped up in this war? Wasn't it a war against Afghanistan? Oh. <laughs> well, well, see here, man. This is see see here, Jack. This is what happens when you threaten my daddy. That's all <laughs> comes down to. You. No, it's it's, it's George Bush. It's a joke, and he's like, "You, you want to know how I got these scars?" Oh. <laughs> 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 well, Daddy wasn't a drinker. I was. One day. <laughs> I got too drunk and I crashed my truck on my way home from my girlfriend's house. <laughs> no, no, he wasn't drunk. He was high on coke. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, let's not let's not slander the former president. <laughs> what do we want to do? What do I want to get sued for libel? You ever, you ever dance with a cowboy in the pale moonlight? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to kill you, Saddam Hussein. What would I do without you? I'm, you, I'm like a dog. <laughs> Did you guys ever read the uh, the interviews of like the the people that were tasked to like keep an eye on him when he was uh, when he was being held before he was executed? Or did, was he? Did he get executed, or did he die? And and no, they uh, saying they hung his ass on TV. I was a kid, and they put it on TV. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Old like, school I, I lynching. They said, "Come on down, bring your picnic, bring your they family, really bring did. your kids. We're gonna have an old school hanging." They know they found him in that spider hole. He was saying uh, they were, the uh, the guards that were tasked with keeping an eye on him when he was being held. 
uh, they fed him American junk food and he said it was the best thing he had experienced in fucking like since before the first Gulf War <laughs> was just gorging himself on fucking like Cheetos and like Cheerios <laughs> and like sugary and like shitty ass American junk food. It's also very funny that they treated him the same way that they treat like a young black kid that's like held before they railroad him. You know, they like ply him with a bunch of like McDonald's and shakes and stuff. And, and then, then when he's feeling comfortable, then they fucking railroad his ass into signing a confession. They've, they've, they've got one strategy. We did give you some of the weapons you used to gas the Kurds, but. But we'll give you some Funyuns in return. How about that? Yeah, how about that? How about that? We'll give you some Funyuns and we'll hang you. How about that? <laughs> Just reminds me of that old Dave Chappelle bit as well uh, about how, like, you know, they took they took Saddam off the money. You know how powerful that is? You know, they took him off the money. And then you're <laughs> he's like, not oh. on fiat. <laughs> yeah, he's not on I'm fiat. I'm going to mint a coin with Saddam. <laughs> And then he like pulls out a dollar bill from uh, from his wallet, and he's like, "We still got slave masters on our money." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but we do, <laughs> but we do, but we do though. <laughs> yeah, ju- uh, I mean, just in the introduction to this book, already so many, so many, you know, tidbits here. Like, just the fiber optics bit alone is so interesting to learn about that, like nuclear winter slash surveillance uh, uh, kind of a model of like fiber optics uh, versus copper versus wireless. Also taking into account, you know, we talked about like, you know, these fiber initiatives from these tech companies and, and SoftBank and stuff. But, you know, lest we forget, like, you know, Google had that uh, Google X project called Loon, which was supposed to be like, you know, hot air balloons that were going to be giving like, you know, wireless signal uh, in remote, you know, undeveloped regions of like South America uh, and Africa, you know, but also as as Chun just laid out, right? Like wireless is great for this stuff because it's so susceptible to surveillance, to data collection, to tapping, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. intercepting, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and it's also such a fragile, unresilient mode of internet connection which you know if you control it you control it you know what i'm saying like uh and and so very interesting to counterpose that that even that material infrastructure of like wireless versus fiber and who gets what and for what reasons yeah i mean i, I think that brings us to an to the close of chun's uh the, the introduction lays out an outline of the chapters to come but we'll get into all that as we go through the book um i'm, I'm excited i think this is going to be on par with with winners autonomous technology in terms of like the amount of very interesting concrete analysis mixed with a uh, very astute theoretical analysis that that we get from this and and understanding uh the the political economy uh, uh, uh and the social theory cultural theory of technology this this is going to be great so i mean we're going to just for just for listeners we're going to uh, proceed with this as we did with Wintersburg, where we're just gonna we're gonna go through it uh, an episode per chapter, um, and those will be coming out every other week. So in two weeks, we're gonna do chapter one uh, of of the of of Chun's book, which is 
uh, titled "Why Cyberspace." So I think we're I, we're gonna be getting into like many of the things we've already kind of hinted around around like these ideas of cyberspace um, as this frontier of freedom uh, of, of this like unsettled territory, this virgin land ripe for the taking. Uh, you know, it's it's free real estate, baby. It's free real estate. That's um, right, baby. And so. I want to thank everybody for subscribing. Uh, thank you for for listening, um, our dear comrades. And uh, with that, we will see you next week. Later. Adios.